This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, David Bromwich will talk about Donald Trump's ruling passions. But we start today with Katha Pollitt. Trump Watch starts right now. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her latest book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Katha, welcome back. Oh, hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you give Donald Trump credit in your new column for at least one good thing, bringing feminism back. Let's talk about how that happened. I think the election of the pussy grabber, scam artist, ignoramus, vulgarian, who had no government experience, who ran on locked her up, uh, and won the White House against a very qualified woman um, who happened to be sane, <laughs> um, and who, adding insult to injury, got more votes. I think all of that has enraged women. I think it has enraged women whether or not they voted for Hillary. And even if they don't realize that's why they're enraged, it is. And, I mean, the, the insult to women in that, that campaign, which was so misogynist with Hillary sucks, but not, not like Monica T-shirts and others too disgusting to describe on family radio, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think that just really made women sit up and take notice. Just one footnote here. I looked up to that T-shirt, Hillary sucks, but not like Monica. It is still for sale on Amazon. $18.99, and then, you know, they have comments from buyers, and one buyer wrote, quote, smelled bad when I first got it. It's quite low quality, close quote. <laughs> quite low quality, quality indeed. Well, your birthday's coming up, so now I know. Now I know what to get you. Well, it did seem during the campaign like all the hard work that women have done over the last, what, 20 or 30 years was finally going to result in our first woman president. And indeed, a lot of good things did happen over the last 20 or 30 years. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's not that she, was a, that she was a woman, you know, everybody says, oh, you're voting with your vagina. But it isn't, that's not what it's about. Hillary Clinton was pro-choice. She favored getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. She uh, was going to make half her cabinet female. She would have been, her, her appointments would have been a feminist. It would have been really good. I think people did see, okay, now finally we're getting some real traction here. And then it didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. And now we find Trump nominating. I mean, almost all his appointments are, are white men, unless they're insane religious fanatics. <laughs> then that, that's when women and black people get to get the jobs. But um, I think it was, it was really shocking. I think people realize, you know, history doesn't always move forward in a straight line. Mm. Well, it's also the anniversary coming up uh, of the Women's March. Do you remember the male pundits who said calling it the Women's March was a mistake because that would discourage men from attending? Yes, Jonathan Shade um, said that of uh, New York Magazine, I believe, and uh, he got teased about that a lot. And it's really funny that it's sort of like the word woman sort of means no men. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, whereas men can mean people, depending. 
Um, and of course, men were invited, and many men showed up. But I think it was very important that there be a statement about female leadership that, you know, enough, enough is enough. Let us be in charge here because we are the people who are particularly um, going to be affected by this. And that's, that's the truth. That's what's happened. So I think, I think women's leadership of a left-leaning organization is a very good thing. And let's not forget that the Women's March was not just in Washington, D.C. It was everywhere. Remember, all over the country, people went to this website and registered that they were organizing marches, and there was this map covered with hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of dots. Uh, you know, in my uh, hometown of St. Paul, thousands of people marched in bitter cold. We record in L.A., who I think was the largest demonstration in the history of Los Angeles. And my favorite story, there was a tiny town in northern Minnesota where one woman posted that she was planning to march, but she couldn't find anybody to join her, so she said she would do it alone. This was a retired librarian in Longville, Minnesota, and then 66 people came from all the tiny nearby towns of northern Minnesota, and they all marched together against Trump in Longville, Minnesota. Yeah, I think, you know, people were surprised that there is so much there is so much feminism, so much liberal, left, whatever you want to call it, politics, Democrat, because we have this narrative that these politics are unsuccessful, especially in the red states. But that's not true. I mean, Hillary did get more, more votes, and Bernie got a lot of votes, too. I think we have to fight the idea that everybody is such a huge reactionary. I mean, look, Doug Jones won in Alabama. That's an amazing statement. So we have a Democrat winning the Senate seat occupied previously by Jeff Sessions. First time a Democrat was elected in more than 30 years, defeated an accused sexual predator, Roy Moore. Uh, You had a fabulous line about that in your column. What was that line? I said, mothers don't look kindly on molesters of teenage girls. Who knew? (laughs) That's great. So uh, I've heard that women have been more engaged in the last year, not just in marching, not just in Alabama, but in electoral politics in other states. Is this true? Yeah. You know, it's really, there are tons of women who are running for office from the very most local to governor of the state. There's more women running for governor governor than ever before. Um, unfortunately, some of them are Republican, but you can't have everything. <laughs> and I think it was such a huge wake-up call. I say it's the, this was the biggest wake-up call since alarm clocks were invented. <laughs> this is what happens when, when you just, you know, we have this idea. It's like the, that arc of justice bending toward justice. And it's as if there's something inevitable about things becoming more egalitarian, more fair, more, more just. It's not true. Things can go the other way. And if you let, if you don't just keep on top of things every minute, that's what happens. Things go backwards. Well, speaking of women in electoral politics, uh, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. You know, the big question is which Republican will run for 
the Senate seat that Al Franken resigned in the special election next November. The Democrats have Mm -hmm. a newly appointed incumbent, the woman, former lieutenant governor named Tina Smith. The big news on the Republican side is that Michelle Bachman, the former presidential candidate from suburban Minneapolis, said a couple of weeks ago that she has asked God whether he wants her to run for Al Franken's Senate seat uh, it's been a couple of weeks now. What do you think God will tell her? Well, doesn't she have to ask her husband? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. Uh, well, I guess we'll we'll have to get back uh, uh, get back to you on that one. And there was Virginia. Let's not forget about Virginia. Virginia voters uh, nearly did the unthinkable. You want to remind us what happened in Virginia since uh, yeah, the last Yeah, well, this, this was amazing. Not only did the Democrat win the governorship, So I I believe that uh, all the statewide offices in Virginia are occupied by Democrats now. But in the elections for the House of Delegates, which is the lower um, house of the state legislature, Democrats came so close to, to tying back from when they were very much in the minority before. And if it weren't for gerrymandering, they would have won because they got 55% of the votes, but they don't get even 50% of the seats. And the end of it was, you know, this famous pulling a name out of a film, out of film canisters to decide who would, who would be seated in an election that came down to a single vote. So your vote matters. Don't let anyone tell you that it doesn't. But, you know, but that shows you how grassroots energy, especially from women who are very plugged into their communities, can, uh, can make a difference that is just incredible. And it's not, you know, there are all these wonderful groups now, Swing Left, Sister District, just a whole bunch of groups that are dedicated to defeating Republicans. I guess at this point, I need to bring up the fact that 53% of white women voted for Trump. I think you are aware of this. They did not vote for the most qualified person ever to run for They for didn't. Uh, so what is to be done about that? How much political energy should we devote to trying to show white working class people, especially women, the, the Trump base voters, that he's actually hurting them and their families. Should that be our focus, winning back Trump's supporters, especially the women? Well, here I depart from some of my fellow nation writers in thinking, no, I don't think we should. I think we should be devoting ourselves to registering and bringing out the, the voters who already agree with us, who are numerous, very poor women and, and men, of course, uh, people of color. I think that uh, to persuade a Trump voter who is not persuaded by simply life, what is happening, I mean, because he is losing support, is a monumental task. These people are embedded in communities where everything, sexism, racism, Jesus, uh, their families are all pushing them toward Trumpism. 
And I think that it's, it's really very hard to dissuade, to, to dissuade people. I think we have to give them the same respect we give ourselves, which is we believe what we believe because we think it's right. And we believe what we believe partly for tribal reasons, too. And the idea that uh, if, if we could only just craft the perfect, humble message uh, that didn't sound like we were urban feminists, they would think, oh, well, you've got a point. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that's the way it works. Katha Pollitt, her new column in The Nation for the one-year anniversary of The Resistance is titled, We Are Living Through the Moment When Women Unleash Decades of Pent-Up Anger. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for more on the Trump front. To talk about Donald Trump's ruling passions, we turn to David Bromwich. He teaches English at Yale. He writes about politics mostly for the London Review of Books and the New York Review. And his most recent book is The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke. David Bromwich, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Well, you open your new piece for The Nation saying... Nothing new and useful can be said about Donald Trump, close quote. That's certainly a bold move. What did we know about Trump before the election? When did we know it? Well, I think people who had been reading about Trump uh, as a millionaire real estate magnate, as a playboy who liked to be in the pages of tabloids, as a you know reality television show host... And as a uh, you know leader of the birther movement, uh, social media uh, and uh, talk radio end of that against Obama, knew that he was a, a dabbler in uh, right wing populist politics recently, you know over the last uh, roughly uh, eight or nine years, and that before that he'd simply been a very rich man who had exploited all opportunities to make money in real estate, had gone bankrupt and had a reputation for corruption uh, equaled by almost nobody as famous in that business. So what I start off saying in the piece for the nation is that it's his fame as a corrupt businessman uh, that seems most important. And then his, uh, uh, his record at the medium short record as a political opportunist. The new things, I suppose, that I have in mind that people are wanting to hear about him is that he is a deep-dyed ideologist of some sort, or that he has a plan for reform of the world system, uh, or that he's trying to build up a uh, para-fascist organization within the United States, none of which is out of the realm of possibility, but none of which I think accurately describes what we know, and what we know is bad enough, uh, and it should be bad enough to uh, run an opposition against. You also say Trump's presidency is one continuous train wreck but his main goal has been accomplished. What do you have in mind here? Well, that refers to the ruling passions uh, that I speak of, the passion for money, for the acquisition of money, uh, and the passion for publicity. He 
acquires more and more money if he can. He uses corrupt means to do so. He protects the corruption by demands for loyalty. And he loves, he craves, I think that's a verb that comes back again and again in many uh, people's descriptions of uh, Trump. He craves attention. The tweets and the concern with his Twitter following and the size of his audience at any given venue are part of that. It's not too much to say obsession with uh, publicity. All politicians, almost all, are preoccupied with questions about their popularity. Uh, Obama was too, for sure. But Trump, in in this need for constant attention and constant affirmation of the attention being paid to him, he's very much an outlier, very much an aberration. And you also have a wonderful quote from 25 years ago when Wayne Barrett, then of the Village Voice, wrote in his book about Trump that Trump was a wounded monster. Is there any reason to revise that view from 25 years ago? There's no reason. To my knowledge, that was a paraphrase. But that's the picture of Trump. It's also the picture you get in David K. Johnston's book on Trump and, uh, you know, very likely in others like Tim O'Brien's that I have not read. You also wrote in The Nation, I quote, the idea that Trump is essentially a racist, essentially a fascist, essentially a misogynist dies hard. I think a lot of our listeners would would, uh, challenge you on that. So please explain. Right. Well, misogynist is a sort of fancy Greek and Latinate word uh, for sexist, uh, I guess, for complicated reasons that have to do with academic politics. We don't use sexist anymore. Misogyny refers specifically to a hatred uh, of women, even to the point of a desire consistently to cause them pain. I think Trump is averse to women. Uh, He has the standard, you know, person who can take advantage uh, attitude towards women in the very loose sense that used to be employed. He is a sexist. I don't think he much likes the company of women. I think initially it must have been shyness uh, that could describe it. Now it's uh, something much worse given his financial resources. But he doesn't much like men either. It's quite clear. So um, that, I mean, I had that sort of thing in mind. Fascist, let's leave to the side unless you want to pursue it. It becomes such an all-purpose word in American politics. It's hard to get a clear definition. But as to to racist, I felt a bit self-conscious about that disownment uh, after he said the most clearly racist thing he has said in his recorded career just over the last few days. Uh, between when that article was in proof (laughs) and when it appeared, the lines about Haiti and the lines about shithole countries in Africa that we shouldn't have people from. Yeah, I think Trump thinks that blacks are inferior to whites generally. He has, you know, some uh, African-American friends like Don King and others. He's not uh, averse to their company any more than he is to the company of women uh, when they're uh, on his side, more or less. I think he believes poor people are losers and a disproportionate number of black people are poor people and therefore losers. And he has a the most ungenerous kind of contempt for losers. Uh, that's been part of, uh, of the Republican Party syndrome in this country for 40, 50 years, if not longer. 
goes back to their resistance to the New Deal, you could even say. But Trump has it in a particularly virulent form. And I think I, I would tend to see his racism as coming under that heading. But yes, in some in some very general sense, um, yeah, sure. If you can say, is this person a racist and half race prejudice, or is this person completely clear of that prejudice? Yeah, Trump comes on the racist side. But I don't think there's any percentage in trying to make a politics out of it. Again, it's just obvious. It's just what people could know quite some time ago from his uh, record of uh, uh, trying various deceptive uh, means for excluding uh, African-Americans from his rentals in New York. And that yeah. goes back to the 70s. He paid a settlement to the government for that, to HUD and its lawyers. But, uh, the, you know, there was, a, there was a, a gag that followed the terms of the settlement, something Trump has been very clever to raging up and down his career. He pays a lot out in settlements, uh, but he also buys the silence of his opponents. Just a couple of days ago, Trump said, quote, I'm not a racist. I couldn't help being an old white man myself, remembering I'm not a crook. It's the kind of denial that that kind of suggests yes. the truth of what's being denied. Yes. Well, he is crazy. I'm using that old fashioned word instead of pretending to analyze him from hundreds of miles away, as some people are misguidedly doing. He is he's crazy in the in, in our oldest, commonest use of that term. Uh, an ordinary, a sane person doesn't say, I am a genius and then say, I am a stable genius. That's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah. you don't do any of those things. And the comparison to Nixon interests me. Um, because when we saw, uh, as we can't help having seen in recent days, you know, the endless quotation and requotation and requotation on CNN and elsewhere of his lines about those African countries, this was the sort of thing Nixon was capable of saying, especially in his uh, later years in office, in the second term especially, and did say, but Nixon said it, we only know now, confidentially, on tape. He didn't know the yes. tapes would get out to public view. And he said it in one-on-one -on -one meetings with people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman, people who were his assistants, or if you prefer, flunkies. Kissinger acted the part of, you know, benignly auditing flunky on some occasions and even didn't discourage Nixon's remarks about Jews. So Nixon was capable of talking that way, but never, even at his most unraveling, would Nixon have said it in a bipartisan, you know, important legislatively organizing meeting where he's, you know, with Democrats, with Republicans, and he knows, you know, from the pattern that this meeting is going to be publicized, that it is in fact a semi-public gathering. To say it in that company that freely, it's just a, betrays a complete lack of the capacity for self-censorship. I can only sigh in agreement. <clears throat> You're sighing at the, yeah, there really is nothing new. <laughs> In the LRB, you had a great argument recently. You wrote, Trump is the name of a cause and not just a person, and you can only fight him with another cause, close quote. Any suggestions? How about Medicare for all or tax the rich or free college tuition or a $15 minimum wage? I think you see where I'm coming from here. 
Yeah, uh, well, you're coming from roughly the Bernie Sanders corner of the Democratic yes. Party, which, yes. uh, as a financial contributor to his campaign and an admirer of him for his integrity, you know, I'm I'm there too. Um, that's a miscellaneous set of positions, positions that you know, let's say, are identified with left-wing social democracy. And I think that the Sanders campaign and the misleading populist elements of the Trump campaign proved that there's much more of an open hearing available to those opinions than uh, most of the mainstream media and the, you know, central parts of both parties had acknowledged. But I don't think it amounts to a cause. The The cause of, of Donald Trump is rooted in resentment, uh, resentment of the displacement of American workers by, it is thought, rightly or wrongly, immigrants, mostly south of the border, fear of terrorism, which Bush and Cheney played up enormously and which Obama did lamentably little to calm down in the eight years given to him to change our state of mind about that. Trump plays on that. And then there is also just the general, you know, encroaching feeling of almost despair about the future of jobs in this country. Those were all topics, with the exception of immigration, those were topics that Trump and Sanders, oddly, had in common. The grounds of comparison for them in places like the New York Times and Washington Post were, oh, they're both shouters. Oh, they both are, they gesticulate and they appeal to the irrational. Oh, how about looking at the actual politics? Since Sanders is a person of high IQ and, you know, estimable grasp of the issues he talks about, you know, Sanders was able to work out positions on this in clear paragraphs. He's a good speaker. Trump is not. Trump just works up emotions. He's a very effective, simple-minded demagogue whom people uh, can go to for the kind of simple solution that there's always a large audience for. But those are the kind of issues I think Democrats, uh, if they want to be an honest opposition and not a pretend resistance, whatever resistance means, and I regret the nation giving the, that whole series of articles the title of resistance, because resistance implies any kind of resistance. It implies we're an occupied country. We aren't that, not yet, not by a long shot. Who knows what it implies? Opposition is standing in the way of wrong policies that threaten the well-being of the people as you see it. And I think the Democrats should be much more than they are an anti-war party. Get us out of these wars five, six thousand miles away against enemies we only create more of by occupying more countries or funneling troops to counter terrorists who fight against them. And um, get us concentrated on rebuilding the infrastructure, things like that, which actually Trump mentioned. Uh, mentioned frequently and has done nothing about another illustration of his opportunism. I think uh, with what's been happening around Santa Barbara and Houston and Puerto Rico and many other places, climate change is coming in on us. It can't escape people's consciousness. And it should be the, the uh, duty of a responsible party to keep it in people's minds day after day. Don't worry about what Trump said on his tweet or how racist he was yesterday or the day before. Remind people that the planet is disintegrating and that Americans have it a little in our power to retard that horrible development. As to immigration, I think the Democrats have given up thinking about it. Uh, the Republican solutions are completely driven by xenophobia, but what they are is just 
is just protective and prophylactic. There's no thought that's gone into them. But the Democrats seem to think any amount of immigration, probably pretty good because we are a nation of immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, I don't think they've looked hard at that issue, and I don't think they've taken a very clear stand except to protect people against Trump's deportations. That merely negative position on immigration um, is an example of, I think, real uh, danger of thoughtlessness in the opposition party. Why? Because it's looking, it's looking to depose him by something that will come up in the Russia investigations <laughs> by a picked group of psychoanalysts who will decide he comes under a medical description. There's a lot of fantasy on the Democratic side, not insanity, but shortcuts that don't make any sense. David Bromwich, he wrote about Donald Trump's ruling passions for the new issue of The Nation magazine. Thank you, David. Thanks a lot. That's it for today's Trump Watch. Today's show was recorded by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. Special thanks to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Wiener. The Trump Watch podcast returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. <laughs>